Well, good morning, Kirby. How are you doing? Last time I was here four years ago, I insulted Donald Myers from this very stage, and no one laughed. Yeah. So I made a little check mark that said, do not insult Donald at Kirby Church anymore. But I'm so thankful to be here and be here for the weekend and minister to the students. I'm so thankful for the youth staff. I'm thankful for Donald picking me up from the airport on Thursday and dropping me off at the wrong hotel. Um, In the snow, I had to trudge across the parking lot pulling two suitcases, bitter wind, but I survived. Um, It's really been a joy to be here with you. Snow Blast was great. Kirby students, thank you so much for allowing me to come and, and be a part of that. Uh, on um, Friday night, I challenged them. The, the uh, theme is whatever it takes, and that's a heavy theme. And Friday night, I challenged them to die to stuff. And on Saturday, I challenged them to die to, stu- uh, die to self. And today, this is the parent edition of whatever it takes. And I would not be doing my job if I didn't make a, uh, a heavy challenge for the parents that are here. When I challenge students to give everything that they have, to give their very lives for the gospel, but I don't challenge the parents to do the same thing, I am, uh, I'm failing in my job. And so it may sound a little cranky this morning, um, the way that it comes across. I, I mean it that way. Um, I, it, this, is serious, this is serious stuff that we're talking about today. When it comes to whatever it takes, I believe that every parent that's in here today, if there was something wrong physically with their child, would do whatever it took medically to make it okay. No cost would be too much. Whatever it was, they would try to make it better. We would do whatever it takes. But I've also noticed that in today's culture in America, whether I'm in Michigan, whether I'm in Arkansas, where my home is, uh, my hometown of Springfield, Missouri, Nashville, Tennessee, wherever I find myself, I see that parents will do whatever it takes to get scholarships for their kids. We're putting an awful lot of pressure on our students, and it's almost like if they don't make it into the right preschool at age four, then they're doomed academically later on. But it's developed into this thing that I hesitate to call it this, but I truly believe that even inside the church, we have established what is called the cult of the kid. We wouldn't ever say it out loud necessarily, but the way that we know that we are having cultish status for our children, all we have to ask this for every family is to say, what drives the family calendar? Is it the parent's schedule that drives the family calendar, or is it the kid's schedule that drives the family calendar? And if it's the kids that are setting the agenda of our family, if it's the kids that are driving our calendar, then I believe we are guilty of the cult of the kid. We are pushing them towards sports. We are pushing them towards academics. We would do whatever it takes to put them on travel teams, to get them uh, people that can help them with their music development or with their academic development, grades, sports, music, pointed so that they can get a scholarship, so that they can get into a good college, so that they can have a good job, so that they can have a good family, so that they can live next door to us. We will do whatever it takes, and we're guilty of the cult of the kid. I want to read a passage of scripture for you today. This is found in Luke chapter 2. 
If you know anything about the childhood of Jesus, you know that we don't know a lot about the childhood of Jesus. We know he was born. There's that recorded both in Matthew and in Luke. But it's in Luke that we find out that when Jesus was 12 years old, that his parents went to Passover in Jerusalem. They left from Nazareth. And you need to realize at that point that everyone kind of traveled together in family clans and in neighborhood clans. And they went to Jerusalem and they celebrated Passover. And then they were on their way home. And that the first night as they traveled back home, Joseph and Mary began to look around and they realized they didn't know where Jesus was. Now, can you imagine being Jesus' parents and coming to the realization that you just lost God? <laughs> so they headed back to Jerusalem. And after two days of searching, they found Jesus in the temple. And Jesus was conversing. It's, it's a little bit different from how we do church in the temple. They would read passages of scripture and the, and the rabbis would begin to speak, but it was a lot of give and take. And here was this 12-year-old kid sitting in the temple holding his own. And it says that they marveled at this, that this 12-year-old. And Joseph and Mary came up and said, you have worried us. What are you doing here? And Jesus says, don't you know I'm supposed to be about my father's business? But it says at that point he submitted and they headed home. And it says, and Mary treasured this in her heart. And then this passage at the end of that chapter says this. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Notice the four things that are here. He grew in wisdom. And he grew in stature physically. And he grew in favor with God and with man. And I think that's a good thing for us to think about as parents, that this is what we want in the lives of our children. As a matter of fact, from the time that my daughters were small, I've prayed this over them, that Kristen, my 21-year-old, who's a junior at Free Will Baptist Bible College, that Kristen would grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and in favor with her coaches and with her, which has been interesting, with her teachers and with the authorities that God has placed in her life. And I pray for Katie, my 19-year-old, who's a sophomore at, at Free Will Baptist Bible College. And I prayed that Katie would grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and in favor with her teachers. Not with her coaches, because there's not any athletic in her life at all. Great disappointment to us. <laughs> yeah. But you see, that's where we're headed. And so today, I'm just going to take this passage, this one verse, and work through it. I think we all know about wisdom. We want our children to be smart. Sometimes they're not, but we want them to be, and we work on that, and we want our children to be wise. That's the fear of the Lord. We'll get to that in just a little bit. We want them to be well physically. And today, I want to talk to you about favor with God. You see, Deuteronomy chapter 6 makes it very clear that the primary role of discipleship belongs to the parents. And the parents are the ones that are supposed to be imparting the faith into the children. That's the way the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6 reads. But Ephesians chapter 4 also says that you're in a partnership. It says that you are discipling your children within a community of faith at the church. And in Ephesians 4 it says, and some have been given to be pastors and apostles and teachers and all of those things. You don't have to do it on your own. As a matter of fact, you almost can't do it on your own. And so there's this partnership that comes together. But I want to ask you this question. In reference to the cult of the kid, I want to ask you, who is making the spiritual decisions in your family? You as the parents or is it the kids? 
You see, I fully believe that the best thing that parents can do for their children is to love one another and to love God. I believe that the best thing is for a student to be able to see mom and dad totally in love with each other. And, you know, that's just gross sometimes. I mean, even, even now, Kristen's 21, she comes home, and Jill and I will be hugging or kissing in the kitchen, and Kristen wants to come and jump in the middle of us. She wants to be a part of it, and Katie just goes, that's just weird. <laughs> but here's the interesting thing for us. I think the second best thing for parents, not only to be in love with God and in love with each other, is to find a church where the parent is being challenged spiritually. I think what we're doing in our culture is we're making church a commodity. I believe we're looking for a better church for our kids and a better church for our teens when I think God has called the parents to find a place, a spiritual community, where they are being challenged in the word of God. And it's the parents that are making the spiritual decision about where they go to church, not the whims of a six-year-old or a 14-year-old. If I stood before you today and said, as a youth pastor, I get my affirmation needs met by 14-year-old girls, you would look and you would say, that's not a good thing. And yet, how many of us, and by the way, I believe we need to have top-notch kids ministries. I believe we need to have top-notch teenage ministries, youth ministries. But are we really allowing the whims of a 13-year-old to decide where our family is going to go spiritually? I think there's something wrong with that. I think that's when the cult of the kid creeps up, even in the best intentions. I think it's better for mom and dad to set the spiritual course of, the, of where their family is going to go and where they're going to worship. It keeps us from making church just another commodity in the cult of the kid. And I believe that we're to raise our children to be in favor with man. Here's a statement that I used to teach fifth grade, and the teacher across the hall from me said this, you don't discipline your children because you love them. You discipline your children so that others will love them. You see, we love our children unconditionally, and I'll add one thing to this. We don't discipline our children because... We love them. We discipline them so that others will love them and love their Jesus in the process. We understand that this is very, very important. And this favor with man thing, it's really up to us. And and I know that we get kind of out of whack with all of this, but there's some red flags that are showing up. I I firmly believe that one of my life's calls should be to establish a a parenting kiosk at Walmart (laughs) and just stand there. No, that's not good, okay? I've actually applauded. I, I watched a mom have a kid just pull a brat situation, and I've watched the mom pull the kid out of Walmart to the parking lot, leave her basket behind, and I stood there and applauded her. I'm like, way to go, mom, okay? But there's some real red flags that are showing up in this favor with man situation that we're talking about. Parenting red flags. There are cowering parents. There are parents who are being bullied by their students. The kids are calling the shots in the family. And sometimes parents are even bullied physically. When I was teaching fifth grade, I had a student that just would not do anything. And so we had a parent-teacher conference come. And I sat down with the mom. And as we were sitting there, I said, you have got to do something here. And she says, you don't understand. My fifth grade student beats on me. 
And I said, what? You don't understand. I'm fearful of my fifth grade student. I said, you have got to take care of this. She said, I'm not sure I can. I said, look, the next time that this happens, here's my number. You call, I will come and take care of this. And she said, I could never do that. She was living in fear in her own home. But that's kind of extreme, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, those of us who are my generation, we still remember the sounds of the belt of our fathers coming off. (laughs) And we knew we were doomed. But I think in today, we might not be physically, but we have kids who are calling the shots and kids who are bullying us. And we're worried so much about what other people think that we actually continue to give in and give in. And we are cowering in front of our kids. We've also got kids who are being covered by their parents. They excuse behavior no matter what. My wife teaches fifth grade, actually in the same room that that I taught in until I went full-time at the church. And she has students, and she comes home and she tells me, this student is in trouble because he never does anything wrong. It's always my fault, or it's always someone else's fault. That's a little different from when I was raised. I remember being in kindergarten, and my mom sending me off to school there in Springfield, Missouri, with a jacket that the... (laughs) zipper just would not work. And she knew it. And she sent me off to school with this jacket without the zipper working. And everything was fine. But evidently, my teacher had had a bad day that day. And as we were getting ready to go home, kid after kid came to the front and they weren't buttoning their jackets or zipping their jackets. And finally, the teacher in exasperation says, the next kid who comes up here who has not zipped their coat is going to get a beating. And I'm like, and I'm trying to zip, you know, and it doesn't work. And I come up, it won't zip. It's so hard. And no lie, she goes, I'm telling you, if I zip this up, you're getting a swat. She leaned over, zip. (laughs) And I got spanked. And I'm wandering out of the school, just crying to the green Impala station wagon that my mom was in. And I went in, I'm crying, expecting that she's going to take my side. And I go in and say, you mom, that jacket you sent me off with, she spanked me. And my mom said, Ah, you probably deserved it anyway. They get in the car, let's go home. (laughs) Doesn't happen much today. And we're in trouble because of it. You see, someone has to be an authority in our children's life. And we need to build into them the fact that it's not our kid who's the good kid that just fell in with a bad crowd. Have you ever noticed that? I've been in ministry a long time, and he's just a good kid. He fell in with a bad crowd. I came to a realization not long ago. (laughs) Someone's a bad kid. It's probably yours. (laughs) But this excusing of behavior, it's always someone else's fault. Never holding our students and our kids responsible is a recipe for disaster. Because the Bible says that God has given us the authorities, and we'd better be building authorities into their life. We also have confusing parents inconsistent discipline, living hypocritical lives. Some of those are karaoke parents. These are parents who begin to dress like their kids and want to be their kids' friends. That's just kind of strange. We have dry cleaner parents who drop them off at school or at daycare or at youth group, and we, they expect someone else to clean them up. We have volcano parents. These are parents who just go off when something goes wrong. That would be me. 
Have you ever set up a trip and in your mind with your kids it was going to be this lovely vacation someplace and you had all of these ideals of about how it was going to go? We did that. We were headed to Nashville for spring break from Russellville, and I guess the girls were like four and three, something like that, and we decided we were going to stop at the Memphis Zoo. The zoo. Who doesn't love the zoo? It was a disaster. We got to the zoo. Everything went fine for a while, but then they got crabby, and they wanted everything in the gift shop, and we didn't give them to them, and Kristen was just being a pain, and about 20 miles outside of Memphis, I had had enough, and I pulled the car over to the side of I-40. I jumped out on the side of the road. I pulled Kristen out of her car seat. I I swatted her behind. I put her in. I looked at Katie. I said, you too. I pulled her out, gave her a swat, put her back in the seat and got back in the car and headed down. And my wife was totally quiet. And about 15 miles later, I said, well, she said, I thought I was next. (laughs) Just recently, I've got a 21 year old a 21-year-old, and she didn't do what I expected her to do, and I lost it. I mean, I absolutely lost it. One of these, is there anyone else like that? I hope. I hope it's not just me. Is there anyone else? And so I, yeah, thank you. I see those hands. God bless you. Um, And so I am walking down the hall. Kristen, I sent her to her room. She's 21 years old. I sent her to her room. She's sitting on her bed, and I am lecturing passing the hall, you know, and I'm just, I come back and I lecture in the door, you know, and I'm back and forth. I went down to Katie's room. She's sitting in a room, just sitting there. I go, and you too, you need to, you know, and I look down and Jill's just sitting again in the living room and I'm like, oh Lord, I've lost it. Have you ever at the end of that had to swallow your pride and go in and sit on your kid's bed and say, I am so sorry. That was way over the top. You still did wrong, but you did not deserve that. That's the reality of where we are. And that's a parenting red flag. And, and, and I really, really thought I'd be better at it by now. But it's been 18 years of this and, you know. <laughs> we have controlling parents. When I was a kid, we wandered the neighborhoods, riding our bikes without helmets, playing with lawn darts. (laughs) Now we have parents who won't let their kids go out unless they're completely encased in bubble wrap, (laughs) afraid that something will be out of their control. And I meet these parents, and they come and they ask me everything about it, and because I cannot totally guarantee the safety of their children, they are not allowed to go anywhere in youth ministry. And that's scary to me. Because... Every one of us know that we can't totally control what happens to our students. I heard recently about a professor at Syracuse University who had a student who had a helicopter parent, college student, university student at Syracuse, and at the end of the lecture was on the phone, walked up to the professor and said, here, my mom wants to talk to you about my grade. Controlling parents. We have commando parents. You know the ones that, here's the line, you're going to do it, and there's, uh, those are fun. We also have coddling parents, where they're their kids' groupies. 
They just follow their kids around and they do the greatest thing. These are the parents that at the end of a kindergarten play will give a standing ovation. I am against standing ovations. We give standing ovations for really low quality. (laughs) It's okay to clap. It's not okay to tell your kid they were deserving of an Academy Award for playing a plant in a kindergarten play. (laughs) And you didn't ask for it. But here's unsolicited parenting advice from Alan. The first is this. Someone has to be in charge. It might as well be you. God ordained the family. He ordained the parents. Someone is going to be in charge in your household. It might as well be you. Embrace the love and the joy that comes from being a parent. Not so much love on the 2 a.m. feeding and then getting thrown up on and starting all over and then doing again. But you know what? I look back on, I look back on the 21 years of Kristen and the 19 years of Katie, and I've loved every part of the life. Has it been easy all the time? No. But the love and the joy and the aspect of the Pointer family being together, I've really enjoyed it. And the second thing is expect difficulties. If you go in as a parent thinking everything's going to be great, you're going to be disappointed about the second night out. If that long. Anticipate the seasons. There's going to be great times, and you look at their life on a whole, and you begin to look at this little kid, and you can't even imagine how you passed through the car seat, baby formula stage of life. Diapers. You celebrate at the end of that, and all of a sudden, they're getting ready to graduate from college. And we thought about that, and we looked forward to these times. Anticipate the season. See the big picture of our kids' lives. Be unreasonable. Because in today's culture, it's what should be reasonable. (laughs) There's a child psychologist named Dr. John Rosemond, and he writes a column in the Little Rock paper every Wednesday, and I read it. And he is a big fan of common sense parenting, and here's how he defines common sense parenting. When faced with the situation, do what grandma and grandpa would do. Because they were parenting long before there were any self-help books on parenting, before there was all of this advice that no one can follow or should have followed, before every situation was not this tremendous problem. And by the way, with parents, I understand this. Because whenever Kristen and Katie do something wrong, my wife thinks this, I'm a terrible mother. I think, I've got morons for kids. right? You know, dads are like idiots. Moms are like, I'm a failure. You know, they go and, you know, and all of a sudden, if you don't potty train your kid by the age of three weeks, you know, you're a failure as a mom and all this other pressure that's there. But you know what? Culture has turned so much that we need to be the parents that say, well, if your friends would jump off a bridge, you know, go ahead. No, uh, if your friends (laughs) would... We need to be the ones that are being what used to be reasonable. It's now unreasonable to have high expectations for our kids. We need to be the ones that are teaching them values. We need to be teaching them proper etiquette. We need to be building what what sociologists are calling emotional intelligence into our kids right now. Self-awareness, managing their emotions, motivating themselves, recognizing emotions in others, empathy, and handling relationships. 
And as we bring this to a close, I want to remind you that our kids are given to us as a blessing. We are blessed with them so that they may be a blessing to the world. All the Kirby kids are over here going, (laughs) today when my mom's mad at me, I'm just going to remind them I'm a blessing to you. (laughs) And your mom is probably going to say, right now you're a curse to me, but we hope to turn it into a blessing later on. See, that's what Abraham, that's that's the covenant that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He said, and you will be a blessing And those that follow after you will be a blessing into the entire world. And that's what our children are supposed to be. So I close with this question. Have you given your blessing back to the Lord? Be an interesting study to see in the scripture how many children were brought to the Lord and given physically. On behalf of pastors everywhere, we don't want your two-year-olds like Samuel. But we do want you to say, you know what? I understand that this is far beyond my goal. I think many of us truly want our children to do whatever God wants them to do as long as it's within 15 miles of where we live. Here's, here's the strange thing for me. Having done this a long time, If your student started on their career, went to college, graduated, started on their career, and came home and said, I had this tremendous job opportunity. It's going to be a ton of more money than I'm making right now. Benefits everything else. But I have to live in California. Most of us would say, boy, we understand that. We're going to miss you head on. But if our student comes to us and says, I was at Snowblast one time, and God got a hold of my life, and he's calling me to go, and I can't guarantee my safety, Because I believe if we're going to do whatever it takes to win the world, it's going to cost the lives of some of our kids. If our student comes to us, our temptation is to say, but you know what? You can serve Christ right here in this church. You don't have to go. Dad, I I know I have a scholarship, but... I really feel like I need to prepare for ministry and I believe God's calling me to a Christian college but it's going to cost you a lot of money. But son, just stay home and just for a couple of years, just, just stay home and we'll work our way through this. And then if God's still calling you, and, and I know, I know I'm meddling now, but I have to. It's a high cost. And we as parents need to be saying, whatever it takes. Father, I ask that you would speak in this time. I pray that you would work in ways. I pray that you would build up the family.